the History Channel original podcast. Lincoln was an extraordinarily good lawyer. When he was in front of a jury, he sort of was just having a conversation with them. Lincoln is so good at persuading a jury, he's almost imagining that he's really had his political game for his life. It's about as far as he's likely to get. From the History Channel, this is Making Lincoln. I'm Andre DeShields. It's the early 1850s. Lincoln and Mary Todd are happily married. They have two children and a pretty Greek revival house on 8th Street in Springfield, Illinois. And his law practice has taken off. In front of a jury, he seems almost unbeatable. Lincoln has left his political career in the past, and he's almost content to leave it there. Almost. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Harold Holzer is a biographer and Lincoln scholar at Hunter College in New York. He explains that it is one crucial piece of legislation that pulls Lincoln back into politics. Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln's longtime rival, United States Senator from Illinois, introduced a law in 1854, and it was called the Kansas-Nebraska Act. With this act, the balance between free states and enslaved states is going to be thrown into jeopardy. That's Caroline Janney, director of the Center for Civil War History at the University of Virginia. Under the Kansas-Nebraska Act, the new territories of Kansas and Nebraska would choose whether to join the Union as a free state or a slave state. This had the potential to tip the balance of power by creating more pro-slavery states. Lincoln's reaction to this new law? Lincoln was outraged by this. But Lincoln is a lawyer now, not a politician. He's winning cases, but he's frustrated, watching something much bigger happening around him. Christy Coleman, executive director of the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, says this is a defining moment for Lincoln. There comes a point for him when morality and the idea of the expansion of human dignity takes the fore. For Lincoln, the young lawyer, there's this series of events from 1850 through 1860 that are going to sharply shape his thinking about what's happening to his country. The Kansas-Nebraska Act passes in 1854, and in response, both pro-slavery and anti-slavery activists flood into the territories to try to sway the vote. New England abolitionists send anti-slavery settlers to Kansas to ensure it becomes a free territory. 
and thousands of heavily armed pro-slavery Missourians pour into the new territory to illegally vote in Kansas' first territorial election. When the two sides collide, violence erupts. Today, this conflict is known as Bleeding Kansas. Most settlers want Kansas to be a free state. But border ruffians from Missouri, which was a slave state, invade Kansas and steal elections to try to make it a slave state. There's a full-fledged war going on. That's Manisha Sinha, author of the book The Slave Cause, A History of Abolition. She tells us that through those illegal votes, violence, and intimidation, pro-slavery legislators are elected. This is a serious blow to the abolitionist cause. Then in March of 1857, things go from bad to worse when the Supreme Court hands down the Dred Scott decision. Dred Scott is an enslaved man in Missouri who was taken to a free state, so he sues for his freedom on the basis of having been in a free state. And this case goes all the way to the United States Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's decision goes beyond Scott's freedom. They are essentially deciding whether individual slave owners can spread the practice of slavery by simply moving to free states. Richard Blackett, professor of history emeritus at Vanderbilt University, says the case calls into question whether black Americans have the right to sue at all. The Supreme Court ruled that black people had never been and could not be citizens of the United States. So blacks have no rights which white men are bound to respect. This ruling throws the very existence of free states into doubt. If slave owners can simply bring their slaves into free states and keep them there as property, what does it mean that the state is free? Can the spread of slavery ever be stopped? Abolitionists are outraged. And Lincoln is deeply troubled. Doris Kearns Goodwin... Lincoln saw that all these series of events divided the country. It divided every party. The Whig Party divides between the anti-slavery Whigs and the pro-slavery Whigs. The Democratic Party divides between the anti-slavery Democrats and the pro-slavery Democrats. The Whig Party eventually is going to collapse as a result of this. And out of this comes the new Republican Party. The new Republican Party's platform isn't calling for the complete abolition of slavery. Rather, it's against the expansion of slavery into the new Western territories. But within the party, there are more radical Republicans who believe slavery is evil and needs to be abolished. Barton Myers, professor of ethics and history at Washington and Lee University, tells us the political divide between this new party and the Democrats is growing more heated by the day. In the late 1850s, the rhetoric within Congress was becoming increasingly hot. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts was one of the radical wing of the Republican Party. He had made a speech called The Crime Against Kansas on the floor of Congress, where he used very salacious language about a U.S. senator from South Carolina named Andrew Butler. Butler is a Democrat. Following Charles Sumner's speech, Butler's cousin, South Carolina Representative Preston Brooks, walks up to Sumner carrying a cane. Brooks beats Sumner unconscious right there on the Senate floor, then walks out of the Senate chamber. No one stops him. Here is Doris Kearns Goodwin again. 
Sumner's carried out unconscious, unable to return to the Senate for three years. After the caning of Sumner in the North, there is a visceral reaction to an attack right in the Capitol. Rallies are formed. Mass numbers of people begin to join the Republican Party. Meanwhile, in the South, however, Preston Brooks has become a hero. People start carrying canes around as if they're going to attack somebody. The split between the North and the South goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Lincoln is so distressed by what's happening around him that he decides he can no longer just stand by. He has to take action. He decides to run for office as a member of the new Republican Party. Lincoln helped form the Republican Party in Illinois, and he becomes the leading candidate in 1858 for the next Senate run, running against Stephen Douglas, who is not only now already a senator, but he's the presumptive presidential candidate in 1860 for the Democratic Party. Stephen Douglas has been Lincoln's longtime political rival. He believes states should decide on slavery, not the federal government. Douglas is running for re-election as senator from Illinois. In June of 1858, the Republican Party chooses Lincoln as their nominee to run against Douglas. Lincoln gives an acceptance speech, and it's the most radical thing he's ever said. And his friends, hearing him rehearse it, had begged him not to deliver that speech. They thought it would end his career. In the speech, Lincoln refers to the Book of Mark from the Bible. A house divided against itself cannot stand, he says. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. I do not expect the union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. Lincoln has reached a crossroad in his political life. The question of slavery must be answered and answered forcefully. Lincoln is committed to pressing his case against slavery, but he needs a way to take his argument to the people. Princeton University senior research scholar Alan Gelzo says Lincoln finds his opportunity in his political rival, Stephen Douglas. Lincoln begins to campaign through the state and invites Douglas to a series of joint debates. Douglas writes back and says, I'm under no obligation to meet jointly with you. I'm the incumbent senator. I'm the most famous politician in America at this moment. Why am I going to give you space on a platform with me? But Douglas can't resist. Douglas comes in as the champion. He comes in a train with a special car decorated. He comes with servants, with secretaries, and Lincoln has to walk from one debate to another. The reputation of Lincoln and Douglas were both on the line here. Lincoln felt that his life had been a flat failure compared to Douglas's. Douglas had gotten further than he had, and now they're running against each other. People come to these debates with all the fervent love and attention that they would bring to a giant sporting event today. But these were more important than any sporting event could have been. As Christy Coleman tells it, Lincoln attempts to base his argument on reason and the central tenets of the Constitution. And that leads him to crystallize a compelling anti-slavery position. During these debates, Lincoln's not an abolitionist by any stretch, but he's inadvertently making their arguments as he's looking for logic in the constitutionality of all of this. 
But like most people of the day, he absolutely fervently believes that black people are inferior, whether they're enslaved or free. What Lincoln does so brilliantly is he takes that core language of the Declaration of Independence and turns it into a nation's moral compass. And he couples that with constitutionality, and he couples that with scripture. He has a really powerful argument. Despite Lincoln's speaking skills, the debates don't win him the election. But they do serve as a springboard for Lincoln's political career. Now, people know his name. Even though he loses this election, once again, the loss becomes a platform for him to grow. Underlying it all is there's a passion that he has, a passion for that cause of anti-slavery, which is coming to a head. Which leads us to John Brown. John Brown is an abolitionist zealot. He settles in Kansas, and he believes through his faith that it is his calling and his purpose in this life to end the atrocity of slavery in the United States because it's an antithesis to God. John Brown cobbles together an abolitionist force to take action against slaveholders in West Virginia. He and his small band of people, blacks and whites, many of them his own children, went into what was then Western Virginia to a town called Harpers Ferry, which was a federal armory, to attack the arsenal. He's trying to organize an army of interracial folks to go into the South, arm the slaves, and destroy the slave system. Brown gathers 22 men, including three of his own sons, and on the night of October 16, 1859, raids the town's arsenal. They take hostages and try to free several slaves. Unfortunately for Brown, they tried and failed. The attack was a disaster. By the next afternoon, a company of Marines under the command of Robert E. Lee has the group surrounded. John Brown is captured, tried, and convicted of treason. John Brown was captured and executed, and he sacrificed two of his sons. Though the Harpers Ferry raid fails, it marks a turning point in the conflict between pro- and anti-slavery Americans. The country is inching closer to war. The stakes are high for the upcoming presidential election. Historian Caroline Janney says... Fear and anger are intensifying everywhere. In the South, there is an absolute fear that there are more John Browns out there lurking. The thought of a massive slave rebellion unhinged white Southerners. And so we start to see more talks about secession. Meanwhile, many people in the North celebrated Brown. Church bells are tolling. People thought that what he had done was the right thing to do, using violence to end slavery in a way that most Republican politicians, including Lincoln, were not willing to even consider at this point. And the reaction to Brown is so important in setting up the election of 1860. In 1860, many Republicans assume that their presidential nominee will be the famous New Yorker, William Henry Seward. But many other Republicans are worried about Seward's appeal to a broad range of voters. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Seward carried the banner of the anti-slavery movement for a decade. He was a great orator and beloved in large sections of the North. After Dred Scott, the Kansas-Nebraska Act, 
and the raid on Harper's Ferry, the country's divisions are deep. Seward, with his fierce anti-slavery position, is not a candidate who can bring the two sides together. So Republican leaders in the East began looking around for other possible alternatives. In February 1860, the Young Men's Republican Union organizes a series of lectures in New York at the Cooper Union. Lincoln accepted the invitation immediately. He was relatively unknown in the East. If he can make an impression there, then he can leave an impression nationwide. When Lincoln shows up after a long journey, his country manner and his clothes do little to impress the New York City audience. Even though he's gotten a new suit, it's badly wrinkled. His hair was disheveled. He does look awkward. But when Lincoln begins to speak to the crowd, something happens around 10 minutes in. His voice relaxes. Its high-pitched tinniness melts into something more endurable, more bearable. His eyes begin to flash. He mesmerized this crowd. Harold Holzer says that after the Cooper Union speech, it's not just people from Illinois who know his name. The next morning, every newspaper in New York City carried an account of the speech, and it's reprinted in Detroit, in Washington, in Chicago, even a German-language version of the speech. Invitations poured into him to go on further speeches all throughout New England. The primary election is fast approaching. And the Republicans are getting excited about this man from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln. He's fresh. He's folksy. He's moderate. Suddenly, the party sees him as a viable choice. He does seem to not be as radical as William Seward, the absolute frontrunner, or Salmon Chase, the governor of Ohio. He's not as conservative as Edward Bates, a judge, former congressman from Missouri. Those are the three main contenders for the nomination. So step by step, he's accepting the fact that I'm really running for the president of the United States. In May of 1860, the Republican National Committee meets in Chicago to select their candidates. It's a very exciting thing. The Republican Party is feeling its oats. The presidential nominee for the Republican Party needs 233 votes to win. Lincoln's supporters work the room drumming up support. His team knows that the importance is to win the battleground states, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Indiana. After the first round of voting, Seward has the most votes. It's no real surprise. He was always the Republican frontrunner. The extraordinary thing is that Lincoln comes in second. After the second ballot, Seward gains a few more votes, but Lincoln gains many more, as delegations now switch to Lincoln. They call for a third ballot. As Christy Coleman explains, Lincoln and Seward personify the party's divided stance on slavery. The backdrop of all of this is we've just dealt with the execution of John Brown and the fever around John Brown. You've got this relatively new party talking about holding slavery where it is. But you also know that people who have aligned themselves with Republicans are saying, end it now. Seward is one of those saying, end it now. Lincoln says, contain it, don't expand it. The Republican Party has a difficult decision to make. How moderate or radical should they be on abolition? What, in the end, is going to get their candidate elected. Hey, 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Republican Party is about to elect their nominee for the 1860 presidential election. It's between the abolitionist William Seward and the moderate Abraham Lincoln. Going into the final round of voting, Lincoln needs a single vote to win. In the end, he gets more than that. Doris Kearns Goodwin. Lincoln's nomination shocked people. They had expected Seward to win, but this new guy had won. And there's an excitement and they rally around him. As historian and author Ted Widmer tells it, Lincoln's nomination is met with skepticism and much worse. He doesn't have that much experience running anything. He's not that well-known. He's hated in the South, and it was pretty clearly a racist hatred. There are accusations that he had African blood, or his wife did. Southern newspapers call him terrible names. He's a baboon. He's a gorilla. He's illiterate. He's a tyrant. Author and Howard University professor Edna Green Medford says the anti-slavery side is also wary. Frederick Douglass and other African-Americans were not too sure of Lincoln. Just because he's a Republican doesn't mean that this man is an abolitionist or that he's going to do us any good. Going into the general election, though, the division in the Republican Party pales in comparison to that among the Democrats. There's a great possibility that the Republicans will win because the Democratic Party has split apart. You have John Breckinridge, who's representing the white slaveholding South. You have Stephen Douglas representing white Northerners. The future of the nation, the future of the democracy, really seemed at stake. This great American experiment in democracy was so new and so fragile. Across the country, Lincoln's face is everywhere. During the election, it was in illustrated newspapers, engravings for display, pins you could wear on your lapel. And finally comes the day Lincoln has been anxiously waiting for. It's November 6th, 1860. The day of the general election, he's restless all day long. He's been so familiar with disappointment that he just fears something bad will happen. About nine o'clock, he and Judge Davis and the friends go to the telegraph office to hear the returns coming in. Finally, at midnight, the word comes in that New York has gone Republican. Then the church bells ring, people gather in the streets. This new guy had won. And then he runs home, as he says, to tell Mary and famously says, Mary, Mary, we are elected. Mary always believed that he had a destiny. She surely believed in him at the lowest moments of his life. And now this great moment has arrived. But Lincoln's victory sets off an immediate chain reaction. Author Clint Smith. Southern states have been saying, if this man is elected, we will have no choice but to secede. And as soon as he is elected, South Carolina decides to have a secession convention. And by December of 1860, 
they decide to leave the Union. By February of 1861, seven states have seceded, forming a new Confederate government. They unanimously vote in the former United States Secretary of War, Jefferson Davis, as their president. Christy Coleman. They're seceding for one thing and one thing only, and that is the preservation of slavery and its expansion. Anybody who says it's states' rights, it's tariffs, it's this, is nonsense. You have not read the Articles of Secession that every single state laid out. And in every single one of them, they make very clear why they are seceding. And it is to preserve the institution of slavery, to control that financial interest forever. While state after state is leaving the Union, the president-elect hasn't even made it to Washington. He'll have to take a two-week train ride from Illinois to reach the White House. Despite everything, Lincoln has high hopes. Lincoln believed over-optimistically that there was a way to get these southern slaveholding states back in the Union once he actually got to Washington. Lincoln's trip to Washington shows him just how bitterly divided the country has become, says author Ted Widmer. On February 11th, 1861, Lincoln begins the train journey to Washington, D.C. It would have been nice to take the shortest route, but he couldn't go through Kentucky, the state he was born, or Virginia, because it was too dangerous. He, he wrote a letter to a friend that he was worried he might be lynched. So he has to go on this very winding roundabout route over 1,900 miles. Whenever Lincoln comes in anywhere, everybody comes out to see him. The crowds and attention are exciting. But beneath it, there's always this underlying threat. People know that the southern states have seceded. The threat of assassination is in the air. There was intelligence of a massive conspiracy to try to assassinate him as he came through Baltimore. The leader of the plot had a system of drawing lots, pieces of paper with a red dot on them. And those who got a red dot would try to kill Lincoln with guns and knives and grenades. But Alan Pinkerton, who was a railroad detective, penetrated the conspiracy with operatives. Lincoln goes from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, to Philadelphia, to Baltimore, to Washington, at night, in secret, wearing a disguise. He arrives in Washington, 6 a.m., unannounced, and he was attacked in the press, depicted in these crazy disguises, including kilts, uh, doing the McLincoln Highland fling and just ridiculed. Not a good thing for a president who's coming to Washington to exhibit courage. Frederick Douglass says, at least now, Mr. Lincoln knows what it's like to travel on the Underground Railroad. Lincoln arrives in Washington just before he's set to give his inaugural address. It is a moment fraught with tension. Despite the ever-present assassination threats, Lincoln rides in an open carriage to the event, alongside the outgoing president, James Buchanan. The editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, is sitting behind Lincoln during his inaugural speech. Years later, he'll say that the whole time he was expecting to hear its delivery arrested by the crack of a rifle aimed at his heart. But it pleased God to postpone the deed, though there was 40 times the reason for shooting him in 1860 than there was in 65. 
and at least 40 times as many intent on killing or having him killed. As Lincoln steps up to make his speech, both sides of the slavery debate are watching to see how far he'll lean toward or against them. Edna Green Medford. When Lincoln ascends to the presidency and he issues his first inaugural address, African-Americans are waiting in anticipation to see what he's going to say. Because by this time, seven states have seceded from the Union and African-Americans are thinking, this is our opportunity. You know, this is the time to end slavery. You've got this Republican who has won. He's not an abolitionist, but you've got enough Republicans who are ready to move on these people who are seen as traitors to the country. There were still very serious fears of assassination. Lincoln wanted the speech to be strong without being threatening, to try to stem the tide of secession. To the American people watching the day of inauguration, Lincoln recites the carefully written speech, ending it with a powerful statement. This beautifully crafted final paragraph steps away from threats and just says, remember, we are all part of the same country with equally valid memories of the revolution that not only gave us our independence, but created a new kind of country. But Lincoln was totally disappointing to Frederick Douglass and other black men and women because in that first inaugural address, Lincoln talked about the fact that he had no inclination, no right to actually do anything about slavery where it already existed. But he's also telling the South he will not permit an illegal rebellion to happen without a response. On the night of his inauguration, Lincoln takes his first steps as President of the United States. He gathers his cabinet, the group of six men he'll trust to help him lead the country. Here's Doris Kearns Goodwin. He had made the decision that will define his presidency to put each of his chief three rivals, Seward and Chase and Bates, into the top positions in the cabinet. Each one of those three rivals thought he should have been president instead of Abraham Lincoln, and they think that Lincoln's rather unremarkable. But Lincoln realized the country is in peril. These are the most able men in the country. They each represented a different point of view, the moderate, conservative, and radical. I need them by my side. President Lyndon Johnson might have talked about that issue in less noble terms. He liked to say, it's better to have your enemies inside the tent pissing out than outside the tent pissing in. Lincoln and his team are in a tough position. Southern states have already taken over many of the federal arsenals when they seceded. That leaves the Union with just a few federal ports in the South, including Fort Sumter in Charleston, South Carolina. The first day after his inauguration, he receives a message from Major Anderson at Fort Sumter telling him that they are running out of supplies, and unless an expedition can bring them relief, they will have to evacuate. Lincoln meets with his cabinet of advisors to come up with a solution. Those weeks of anticipation before Fort Sumter were the hardest weeks for him. He's still hoping that maybe there'd be some way to prevent a war. He's thinking, if I provision Fort Sumter, it might bring about a war. If I don't do that, then maybe we're going to look like we're so emboldening the South that it'll make the secession even more permanent. Historian Greg Jackson tells us those divisions lead some senators to go behind Lincoln's back. Seward is talking to South Carolina. He's having discussions with the secessionist leaders, basically suggesting that this can be negotiated, things can be worked out. And he's doing so without Lincoln's knowledge or approval. 
But Alan Gelzo says that when Lincoln finds out about Seward's action... Lincoln's response was brief and firm. That puts Seward pretty firmly in his place, and it is something of a tribute to Seward that he understood that Lincoln was the boss and that there was more to Abraham Lincoln than he had originally thought. At this point, Colonel Doug Dowds of the United States Army College tells us that Lincoln must choose his moves carefully. Lincoln doesn't want to create war, so he tries to again thread the needle on this. And he says to the governor of South Carolina, look, I will just send food and water. I won't send one more man, not one more grain of powder, not one more bullet to Fort Sumter. You couldn't be against someone getting food or water, could you? He puts the Confederacy in a bind. If they allow the ship to come in, the stalemate continues. If they fire, well, then the Confederacy has fired the first shot of the war. But the Confederates press the Union to surrender Fort Sumter. And they refuse. The Confederate men fire on the fort for 36 hours until finally the United States flag is lowered. The Civil War has begun. In April of 1861, Americans are wondering, will there even be a United States at the end of Lincoln's first term? By the time Lincoln comes into office, seven states have seceded. The United States doesn't even have a sizable military force. There's only about 15,000 total troops in the United States Army. You talk about coming into office with a full plate. Lincoln's immediately tasked with trying to preserve a union together that is already falling apart. It's important to remember, Lincoln's just one generation removed from Washington and Adams and Jefferson. He feels his generation has the responsibility to keep that experiment going. Lincoln is not allowing the South to just go its merry old way without challenging it because the democracy that America had created was unique in the world. And to what lengths will Lincoln go to save it? That's next time on Making Lincoln. Making Lincoln is a podcast from the History Channel produced by Best Case Studios. For the History Channel, Jesse Katz and Jennifer Wagman are the executive producers. McKamey Lynn, supervising producer, and Julie Magruder, producer. The executive producer for Best Case Studios is Adam Pincus. Suzanne Myers is our producer. Ashley Warren is the associate producer. Galen Mullins edited and mixed this episode with assistance from James Hansen. Abraham Lincoln was originally produced by Radical Media for the History Channel. 